invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the text that was read, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we move through some of these chapters, they might seem a little bit unrelated to each other, um, like maybe they're separate topics, different themes, that, that, and there are definitely some themes that Paul is dealing with, but there is a definite connectivity that underlies each of these in the way Paul responds to each of these topics. There is certainly some significant underlying connection. And uh, just for example, last Sunday we, we saw in chapter 5 that the wedge of pride had caused the church to disregard the ethical standards that the gospel calls us to. They felt as though they didn't necessarily have to consider what Jesus said about one's lifestyle. And so, their pride had caused them to disregard the need to purge sin. And the gospel in that case had become the kind of a secondary thing. It wasn't the highest authority in their life. Pride had elevated them to the authority. And so, as they became their own authority… Uh, they were not only just tolerating uh, relational sins of others, but their own, and, and it had caused real problems. But the gospel teaches us that when the seed falls on good soil, it's going to produce fruit. Fruit production, evidence of saving faith, occurs, and it bears consistency within a person who calls himself a brother. There needs to be that consistency that if you call yourself a brother that you're manifesting the fruits that grow out of the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if it doesn't, then the one who bears the name of brother is not really a brother, and so we have to deal with these inconsistencies. And the problem is a distortion of the message. The pride had called a, caused a distortion of the message. The lifestyle had caused a distortion of the message. And so they were tolerating sins that even the pagans didn't tolerate. And so it was a real problem. And so this church thought that they were great. They could navigate life on their own, independent of what the gospel was teaching them, how they were supposed to live. And uh, the problem was that they couldn't see how spiritually impoverished they really were. They thought they were great, that they were something, but really they were weak and they were shallow and they didn't have roots uh, in the teachings of Jesus Christ. They weren't able to carry out the basics of church discipline, something that Jesus had taught them to do, that when a person bears the name brother but they're living in such a way that distorts what they say, the church has to come along and, and, and wake them up and help them to see that there's inconsistency there. They weren't able to even follow through on something as basic as that. And um, I think it might help us think about that for a moment, that, that the inability to remove a person that was having incest and was also corollary to the problem that, that Paul's going to address right now regarding lawsuits. On the one hand, they couldn't deal with sin, and on the other hand, they, were, they weren't able to handle it within the church, and so they had to go outside of the church to have grievances settled. They didn't know how to 
do basic communication within the body. They didn't know how to carry out church discipline. Now, I know I just asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, so please put your finger there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18 for a moment, because this is really important background for what Paul is communicating here in this text. And in Matthew 18, verses 15, really to the end of the chapter, Jesus addresses when there is a problem, when there is a grievance, when someone has, has had a sin against you, and how do you carry out the resolve of that grievance? And in this text, in verses 15 to 20, we have the classic description of what is called church discipline. It gets its name from the, the last step in the process of dealing with a grievance. When the person refuses to listen and to hear, they have to be taken and placed outside of the body because they're demonstrating a hardness of heart contrary to the gospel. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, I'm just going to read it because it may be not as familiar to some of us, but in verse 15 it says, if your brother sins against you, go to Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This has that classic descriptive of being called church discipline. It has, at times, a negative feeling. Uh, based upon the result of having to push someone outside the body. I think that we do this passage a real disservice by calling it church discipline because it really is good communication that if a person has a difficulty with another person, they need to clear it up. They need to do the right thing and go to that individual and clarify and seek restitution and find out, okay, what is the situation that's really happening? And it's important, I believe, to see it this way. It's a three-step outline, basically, of a gospel-centered communication, of doing the right thing for your fellow man, of loving one another, not just communicating about a person without going to talk to the person. It's loving others as you would wish others would basically do to you. And so, I think what this is demonstrating is that now, okay, in… in uh, Corinth, they were doing lawsuits because they couldn't handle the grievances. They were so immature, they couldn't handle basic communication that the gospel calls them to do. And I think that's really important for us to see. Secondly, before we leave this text, in verse 21 and following, Peter recognizes what's happening. And he says to Jesus, okay, so what if someone has, I have a grievance against somebody? Do you mean I have to forgive them? Am I obligated to forgive them? And Jesus said, yes. And he asked, well, how many times do I have to forgive them? And Jesus said, 70 times 7. 
And essentially, Jesus was saying, if someone offends you 70, 70 times, seven times in one single day, you're obligated to have a heart of forgiveness towards them. And I think that's really an important compliment to the thought on church discipline. Church discipline or proper communication with other people will not happen unless the, the, the log is taken out of your eye before you go and address someone else. You have to have an attitude of forgiveness in your own heart towards that person who has offended you to be able to carry out steps of communication well. Really important principles before we go into what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 6. He's saying, you think you're hot, you think you're great, but you're demonstrating that you can't handle grievances by taking them outside the church, that you're not, that you're spiritually immature. You don't know how to do good communication. And so he browbeats them on, on their, not, their inability on the one hand, to deal with flagrant immorality, and on the other hand, to get worked up over temporal matters, which in the light of eternity don't matter. And so, in this text, Paul is addressing them with the gospel principles, and he's teaching them that, that our future inheritance that's going to be ours ought to affect our present conduct. If we truly believe that we are receiving a kingdom to come, it will cause us to think differently about the relationships that we have with other people. And so, in verses 1 through 4, I'm lifting out principles here and asking us applicable questions. And in verses 1 through 4, Paul is asking them and he's asking us, are we people of the future? Are we people of the future? Let's look at verses 1 through 4 for a moment. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will one day judge the world? That's your future reality. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters that pertain to this life? He's horrified. <laughs> on the one hand, there's this, this incest that they can't deal with, and on the other hand, there's this litigation between brothers going on in a public court of law. And so, Paul does something really interesting here. He's calling us to take account of who we are, who we will be because of Jesus Christ and start living today in that reality. And so, really, he's asking him, where do you stand? Are you an insider? Are you inside the body of Christ? Or are you outside of the body of Christ? They're demonstrating by their spiritual immaturity that they don't know how to handle life inside the church. Maybe they are really outside of the church. And so, he describes outsiders here as the unrighteous or the ungodly. You see that in verse 1. Does he dare to go out before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And on the other hand, he describes the insiders as saints. 
Now, the word unrighteous and the, is, is, can be translated by the word ungodly, but the idea here in its widest meaning is that they're people who are violators of the law. And there's irony in what Paul is saying. You're going to violators of God's law to seek judgment for you? This doesn't make sense. And so he describes the insiders as being saints. And that word is a descriptive word that describes people who have been set apart, specially set apart for the purpose that God ordains. They're holy unto the Lord. Now, it's really important that we've come across these categories of thought before. We have, we have seen these before, and, and if you look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, I can't remember if there's a slide for that or not, but if you turn back just a page or two to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, it's important to see the contrasting groups that, that are described by Paul here. He says in verse 18, as it speaks of the gospel, of the message of the cross, he says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, let's follow Paul's thinking here for a moment. On the one hand, you have these outsiders who are violators of God's holy demands, His law, These people are perishing. They're outside of Christ. On the other hand, you have the insiders who are declared holy by God, who are being saved. They're not perfect, but they're in the state in God's eyes of being saved. They're being brought into the future kingdom of God. So, what is the difference? The difference between the two groups is that the word of the cross is seen, the wisdom and the power of Jesus. Now, I am reviewing a little bit here because it's important to see what Paul is saying. And your ability to see the beauties of Jesus Christ and the humility of the cross as something to be desired is evidence that God is alive and at work within you. You're inside of the church. And so, it's really important for us to see this, and the problem is, is that when we forget where we are and where we're going, our tendency is to become looking a whole lot more like the world. When we lose sight of that future, glorious place that we are going, we begin to act and self-lift. We, we in pride, push ourselves up, and we we forget what we're going, where we're going and who, why we've been saved. Now, look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please, in verse 2 particularly. Paul is talking about already, but not yet, okay? In verse 2, Paul is reminding them that one day they will judge the world. That has not yet happened. We're going to be the ones judging those who are perishing. And yet, we have realities in the church that we can start doing now. There is an already but not yet reality that he's describing here. But he's showing us two groups of people in the future that we will rule over. 
We will judge the world, but we will also judge and rule over angels. Take that in for a moment. One day when Christ comes, there will be a millennial kingdom set up in which the saints of God who are being saved in this era will be involved in the direct rule with Christ on this earth. We will judge the world. We will rule over humanity. We will also judge the angels. I don't think I can fully grasp that. Scripture is not exactly clear on how and what this will look like, but the word judge here also has the idea of rulership. We will be vice regents with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, verse 2 and 3 together, Paul's describing what the future is going to be like, and he's arguing that if, if your position in Christ means that one day, but not yet, you will rule and reign on this earth, then why is it so difficult for you to come to agreement on something so trivial and temporal in this lifetime? If you were growing in spiritual maturity, this already but not yet reality of the life of the Spirit, it would be evident in your interpersonal dealings. You'll be able to talk with people, communicate with people who have perhaps caused you an offense. You'll not hold it against them and make, you, make them repay to the nth requirement. Because you have been forgiven by the grace of God, you will begin to demonstrate a graciousness towards other people. And the question is, are you a person of the future? Are you inside of the church or are you really outside when you think you're in? And he's asking these people a hard question. He's asking us a hard question. Practically speaking, this week I had somebody approach me in a very positive way about something that I had said that caused a bit of an unsettling. It was the right thing to do. They came and we talked and we spoke and, and there was hearing and I was hearing and everything was great. And the reality is that's what spiritual maturity looks like. It's not sitting in one corner and another person in another corner and never talking to one another. Spiritual maturity looks like conversing with one another because we have taken the log out of our own eyes and we can then go and talk with another person. And Paul is saying, look, this church, you can't do this. This is not happening. You're not as mature as you think you are. So he goes in verses 5 through 8 and then shows us by negatives, positive uh, principles of what people of the future look like. And um, he's laying it on them, but I think that if we miss the fact that he's, he's saying, look, if there's no one who can do wisdom right within your body, he's actually showing us what, what we should be shooting for, is that we're looking for wisdom to grow. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. He lays on sarcasm, awful hard, uh, in verses 5 through 8. But let's read it. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
a brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? And why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your brothers. Now, he's, he's very hard here, but there are hints in what he says that gives us a picture of what future people will look like when we are fully sanctified, when we have become like Christ. And uh, he gives us three examples, but before we get to these three examples, I want us to think about this future perspective a little bit. Maybe you're still having a hard time getting what I'm saying. I hope that's not the case. I could maybe ask it this way. What did you want to be when you were young, like when you finally grew up? Did you have like a vision of what you might like to do in life? I think it's very appropriate that the Scriptures tell us that the best candidates for the kingdom are children. Children play out what their view of the future will be. Children will often put on the little, you know, stethoscope, the children's stethoscope, and I'm going to be a doctor, and they start playing doctor. They're not yet a doctor, but they're anticipating what they will be, and they start living it out in their little world. And I think it's important for us to realize that what Paul is saying, hey, if, if you can anticipate what you're going to be in the future... Start playing it out. Start doing it now. And uh, another parallel passage to this is in 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. Particularly verse 3. Listen carefully to what John says. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And this is the really important point. And everyone who thus hopes in himself, in Him purifies himself as He is pure. As we anticipate Christ and being with Him we start to play out the realities in this lifetime. Okay, so what does people of the future look like? Well, verses 5 through 6, Paul says that you will have the very wisdom and power of God available to you in its entire fullness. How do I see that? Well, in verse 5, he lambasts them and says, look, you don't have anyone wise amongst you? You don't have anyone who has the wisdom of God that can mediate problems. And he's shaming them for their apparent lack of wisdom, so the opposite would be that they would have wisdom. And that's taught to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's wisdom is humility. It's not pomp and circumstance. And that is a guiding principle should help us navigate through a lot of life's issues. And so, it's really important that, that we appropriate now the humility of the cross which moves us to adopt a self-forgetful stance. In other words, it's not about us. It's about the kingdom of God and His righteousness. 
And so if we could adopt that principle of wisdom in this lifetime, it would make us good arbiters within disagreements. Life is not about us. And when we adopt this perspective, then we're ready to hear criticism when it comes our way and then admit fault when we have had fault. So what do people of the future look like? Well, it's implicit humility. It is Christ and Him crucified. That's what it will look like. In verses 7 through 8, He shows us that we have an eternal place in the presence of God, and that's waiting for us. And if that, that, that future place, that eternal place is there for us, then we should not hold on to temporal things so tightly. So in verse 7 to 8, uh, he says, um, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. To have lawsuits at all, like, like it, it doesn't matter, it's not important. What is important is eternal. And I think it's helpful for us to see that the future view affects the realities that we live with today. Um, in verse 1, the word translated grievance, if you have a matter, I think some translations say, a matter against anyone, it's literally the idea of a business or a task. And, and in the context, he's saying, look, you, you might have a, a matter of grievance, but now he's saying, look, in verse 7, he's saying to have lawsuits at all over matters of grievance is already a defeat for you because you've got your head on this earth to the ground and you can't see what's coming. And so it's important for us that we are living out the reality that we are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. What do people of the future look like? They look like they're humble, not as concerned with the temporal matters of life. And then they also have the confidence of the coming assurance of God's justice. In verse 4 to 8, there's the realization that, that I don't have to have this thing settled in this lifetime. I don't have to have this concern settled because one day the King of Kings will make all things right. In these verses, I, I don't believe that Paul is saying that there is never a time when Christians should file a lawsuit. I believe it's more honest to the context here that believers should not file a lawsuit against another believer within their own church. Now, there are times when filing a lawsuit actually is not so much to advance yourself, and I think it's important for us to realize this. Filing a lawsuit at times is the advancement of justice in a society. And I think it's important for us to realize that if it's between you and another brother in Christ, you need to stop and think carefully, is this to advance yourself or to advance the cause of Christ and His, his desire for righteousness to reign upon this earth? Now, Paul is talking about inter 
brother and sister conflict. In verse 7, he says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying, look, retract the clause. Like, recognize that, that this is not so much about you and getting it your way. But I think it's really important if we stop here, we are missing an important piece that we shouldn't let all matters drop. We shouldn't. Because he, he rebukes here at the end of verse 8, he says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud. So there's somebody who's offended and there truly is something that someone is doing that is wrong. And there are times where that has to be addressed. It is easier at times to let a matter drop, and sometimes maybe that's the best thing. But there are times when it has to be recognized, it has to be brought to light, and how you do that is by, you do proper communication. You go to that individual by themselves. You work through, and if they don't hear you, then you take another alongside of you. And if they still don't hear you, then you've got to take it to the church. That's the proper methodology of conflict resolution. Arbitration should occur, but it must occur with the right attitude. You've got to take the log out of your own eye. You've got to remove that. You've got to have the attitude of forgiveness so that when there is recognition that you will let them off the hook You won't require it of them anymore. It's important for us to understand that if if we have something against our brother or sister, we need to take a moment to pray, and we need to ask God to help us communicate with humility, with compassion, and with gentleness. And to be able to do that is truly a mark of spiritual maturity, that you're growing and becoming like Christ. And so Paul is saying, look, this all relates It all relates. These are all these little topics, but they all relate to how you are growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, verse 9 to 11 feels maybe like Paul's moving on to something else. He's not. He's not moving on to something else. In fact, he's asking us, where do we land? Do we land inside or outside? Paul transitions from those inside to those outside here, and he he says, look, the unrighteous, the outsiders, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, in verse 9. And so, in other words, those who are inside the church of God are going to be the inheritors of God's eternal joy. And Paul says that we shouldn't be deceived And he gives a a list here of those who are outside by their actions, demonstrating they will not submit to the God of heaven and earth by their actions which are flagrantly outside of his commands. And if a persistent practice shows itself, they're demonstrating that they're not inside of the church. It would be tragic, really, to think that we were on the inside when we were actually on the outside. And so he goes down here now on the individual level, and he's been talking to the church as a group now on a large-scale level. Now he's going down to the individual to get us to think and to consider where do we stand. And he gives quite a list of those on the outside here, and I don't believe that this is exhaustive. But in verse uh, 9 through 
10, he gives quite the list. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed. You are being saved. And so, Paul gives us a list, and I'm just briefly going to comment on each of these, not in great detail, but just to help us to visualize what he's talking about. Sexually immoral, that refers to any sexual relationship, whether actual or imagined, that occurs outside of the one man and one woman covenant relationship. It's pretty broad in scope. Idolaters refers to the worship of anything other than the true and living God, and it doesn't have to be the things that we tend to look at as being like metals and figures and wooden creatures. We can create and invent our own idols that we hold up higher than God Himself, and we, we prioritize above the worship of Him. It could be wealth, it could be beauty, it could be fitness, it could be hunting, it could be anything that takes your attention away from God Himself and the worship of Him. Adulterers, it refers to the immoral breaking of that covenant relationship with your spouse and entering into another relationship. And it says there are men who practice homosexuality. This is not actually the best translation. Because there are two words here that are grouped together in this description to the active and passive partners who engage in homosexuality. Nor thieves, he says. It's referring to people who cunningly embezzle other people. They, they take things when, when the boss isn't looking and they put it in their pocket and they, they make the, the counting look great, but it's really a sham. And they, they take things that don't belong to them nor have the right to take them. The greedy, the greedy, this is the, the ungenerous spirit that seeks advantage in all of life's relationships. This is not just monetary, but this is the people who always take. They never give. They expect everyone to revolve around them, and they're greedy for their own time, and they don't serve anyone else. They're greedy, and they don't, they're very selfish. The drunkards, this is referring to people who are on the spectrum of, of functional alcoholic to, to unfunctional. This, this, this is characterizing people who are outside of the kingdom. Revilers. This is referring to people who engage in slander. They're abusive and they hurt the reputations of others. Swindlers. These are people who oppress others with trickery. They make it look like you're a part of something good, but really you're being taken. They're swindlers. And Paul is saying that people who make it their habit to live in this way, they demonstrate that they are outside of the church, and they're not exhibiting the future realities that they profess with their own mouths. In other words, their future inheritance is not there. Because a person who has a future inheritance in heaven, it will begin to affect their current life here in this world now. 
So on the inside, so we see the outside. On the inside, this is the positive side of saving faith. It's going to reflect in our relationships and our personal conduct as we anticipate our future inheritance. And this is what faith looks like in action. Notice in verse 11, in verse 11 it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so we need to recognize that the grace of God doesn't become a license, it becomes a freedom to be what we've been created for. Our present conduct must be affected by the grace of God because Paul says, and such were some of you, evidently within the context of the Corinthian church, some of these people had been in this former lifestyle, but now they are washed and they are being sanctified. Now, it's really important for us to recognize that the word were some of you is a past tense. And the next one is a passive, a past tense as well. And you are being washed. You are being cleaned up. And you are sanctified. You're being set apart as God's possession. You're justified. It's like God looks at you and it's as if you have never sinned. Don't trample the grace of God. Become who you are in Christ. He has forgiven much. Let's remove and purge out the evil. And all this is because of the name of Jesus Christ. It's based on His authority. Now, what is in a name? When we think of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're thinking about supreme authority. He arose from the dead. He has rights to everything. He ought to be the primary authority of our lives. And by virtue of his resurrection ascension, he was crowned king of kings. And so the resurrection authority is provided through the atonement authority that comes for the forgiveness of our sins. All who repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ are brought into the sanctuary of God's grace. Not to sit there and act as if we're still outside outside of Christ, but we have to become moved by the grace of Christ to change. And those who are inside will be profoundly affected by the Spirit of God. Notice how he finishes this little phrase. It's not throwaway words. It's not just because he needed a flowery ending. And it's by the Spirit of our Lord God. The Spirit of God rebirths a person and causes them to have new desires so they don't want anything to do with the old way. They only want the new way of of becoming like Jesus Christ. We want the future King to be living in our hearts now. That's what we want. I think it's important for us to stop and consider that it is possible to receive Christ in a way that the natural person does, and we don't, in the end, receive Christ at all. A lot of us could sympathize with the fact that we might want a guilt-free life, we might want a pain-free life, we might want a disease-free life, we might want the blessings that come with a moral life. But if we don't prize the Lord Jesus Christ above all things, 
It might be a revelation that we are not in Christ. Why would we keep falling into immorality, into adultery, into slander, into greed, or to covetousness? Is it because we're so enamored and our desires are fixed on things that are outside of God that we really truly are outside? It's going to be a burden to you to live the Christian life if you are not born again. If you have not appropriated the faith of Christ in a way that trades the foolishness of this world with the wisdom and the power of Christ, then you may not be converted. It's a hard way to end, but it's an important way for us to end. Our future inheritance ought to affect our present conduct in the life of the church. Are we people of the future? Paul's asking this in verses 1 through 4. But what do the people of the future look like? They look like people who have been filled with the humility of Christ. They look like people who who are growing in their personal holiness. They're leaving the, they're removing the leaven of this world from their lives. They're becoming people of the future. They don't care about the temporal issues other than just have food in their mouths. We're anticipating the coming day of Christ's kingdom. So where do we land? Do you land inside or do you land outside? And if you are finding in your heart that you're landing outside, I beg of you, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn in your hearts and seek, and seek the Savior. He will be found of you. But know this, that it is by grace alone, it is through faith in what He has done that salvation comes. It is recognition with submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords you can receive His forgiveness by simply in your heart this morning saying, I'm done. I'm done with this foolishness that has plagued my life for years. I want to be inside the kingdom of God. And I want to encourage you within your own heart, even this morning, to pray before the service even ends. Call out within your heart to the Lord. He will hear you. Put your faith and trust in Him. He will not make any ashamed. He will keep His word. He will hear your prayer, and you too will be saved. And you too can have the hope of eternal life.